How is the process of digitization changing the world? From discussions about intimacy to the surveillance of publics, we will bring you ideas and speakers that question how digital elements are transforming our everyday lives. Welcome to the Global Digital Cultures Podcast. Hi, everyone. I'm Rivka Jaffe, and welcome to the Global Digital Cultures Podcast, where we bring the global and the cultural in conversation with the digital. So I'm Rivka Jaffe, I'm a professor of urban geography here at the University of Amsterdam, and I'm presenting this podcast together with my colleague Thomas Poole. I'm uh, Thomas Poole, I'm a professor of uh, data, uh, culture and institutions at the University of Amsterdam, and we're joined today by Stefania Milan, a colleague uh, of ours at the University of Amsterdam, who's associate professor of new media and digital culture. She's also the principal investigator of the ERC-funded Data Active Project, co-principal investigator of the ELADA Project, I hope I pronounced that in the right way, and the project leader of the citizenship and standard setting in digital networks. Her research lies at the intersection of technologies and society, and she investigates the uh, possibilities of self-organization, emancipation, and autonomy that digital infrastructures opens up. So today we'll talk about uh, her work on data activism, which she's worked on over the past five uh, years, six years even, and now she's uh, finished with that project and is starting to work on a new project on data infrastructures, but we'll also turn to questions on uh, global digital cultures. But before we dive deep into um, all of these research projects, uh, we want to start with a personal question. Uh, so Stefania, welcome. Uh, very nice to have you here. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about yourself? Um, so where did you grow up? Where did you study? Uh, and uh, where have you worked before? And especially, we're interested to hear how all of these well, experiences, work experience, study experiences influenced your research. Yeah, thank you very much for having me here. Uh, I'm very excited to contribute to the discussion on global digital cultures at the uh, University of Amsterdam. So, my name is Stefania and I come from a small village in the northeastern part of Italy. I'm not going to bother you with a name because no one is going to even be able to position it on a map. But I come from a street where my entire family um, grew up essentially. So my entire family is in the same street as in an Italian uh, tradition. I'm also the first uh, academic in the family, the first one to uh, complete uh, university, although I was followed by my sister, who is also an academic now. Mm -hmm. And um, after moving out of my tiny little village, I joined the University of Padova to study communication sciences. That's what it's called over there for both my BA and uh, master. After that, uh, well, I worked a little bit as a journalist, mostly in London and in uh, Brazil and a bit, little bit in Portugal as well. And then I started a PhD at the European University Institute uh, in Florence, which is a doctoral school of the European Commission. Uh, and my PhD was on, uh, formally on social and political sciences, where I specialized, in fact, on social movements and political uh, sociology. Where did I work? Well, before joining the UVA, I've been traveling wide and far, mm. mostly following the job market, but also my inclination for traveling. I'm really greatly inspired by encountering other cultures and by what there is to be learned in being exposed to the way people do things elsewhere, out of my comfort zone. So, in fact, I actually never worked in my own country, Italy, as an academic. Uh, but as an academic, I worked at the Central European University in Budapest, which now uh, moved to, to Vienna, but it's an American college that was based uh, in Hungary. I work at the University of Lucerne in Switzerland for a while as a teacher while still doing my PhD. Then what did I do? I, I worked in London a bit. I worked at um, the University of California at it, Irvine. Actually, that was uh, my sort of during my PhD, so I studied more than worked. Mm -hmm. Um, and after my PhD, I went to the University of uh, Toronto for my postdoc at the Monk School of Global Affairs and uh, Public Policy, more specifically at the Citizen Lab, which was working mostly on cybersecurity issues, where I was the sociologist in a way. Mm. And uh, what else? Uh, <laughs> well, before that, I was at McGill University in, uh, also in Canada 
uh, a soft spot for Canada, as you might be able to tell, before returning back to Europe. And my first destination in Europe was, in fact, Tilburg University in the southern Netherlands. But as someone who, uh, with a deep passion for Amsterdam, I eventually <laughs> was able to <laughs> relocate at the UBA. I guess this summarizes it. In the meantime, there has been, of course, a lot of uh, explorations for what we do as academics, which is probably the most interesting part of our job. I mean, traveling for conferences and field work, but that, I guess, is another story. Sure. What did I learn along the way? Well, you know, I learned uh, the beauty and the perils as well of uh, interdisciplinary work, because as someone who has been teaching anything from data science to political science to political communication to, to media studies, uh, well, I've been exposed to different students with different needs, with different programs, different ways of doing things, and, and always gathering you know, best practices along uh, the way. And I've also learned languages, although admittedly Dutch is probably the most difficult of all of them. Uh, but um, apart from that, I've also uh, been exposed to um, yeah, different ways in which citizens live through uh, or filter their, for example, use of technology. Mm. And this has inspired greatly and keeps inspiring greatly my research. Mm-hmm. Great, thank you. So, I mean, for those listening, uh, it's probably good to tell you that we're actually recording this at a, a bar nearby the university to have a little bit of the experience of, uh, uh, of Amsterdam uh, public life. Uh, so if there's any hard noises, we apologize, but uh, we think the setting is, uh, is very fitting. So if, now, if you, if you hear clinking ice cubes, that's us uh, with our drinks. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so let's go over to uh, data activism. Yeah, can you tell us a little bit about this massive project that you've been uh, well, trying to sort of, you know, uh, bring, to, bring to an end, perhaps? Um, but but that sounds like it's been dominating your life for the past six years. So it's a European-funded project on data activism. So can you tell us a little bit, what were the main questions that, that you took with you when you started this project? Do you have sort of a clear sense of like, okay, these are results, these are the answers to these questions? Or do you maybe also have, at least this is my experience, do you have new questions that came out of this, this massive project? Tell us a little bit about what you've been up to. Actually, I think you, you go uh, in the right direction there in the sense that any research project, no matter how big, no matter how expansive, no matter how many people you involve in it, how many brilliant minds, it's always good to actually originate new research mm-hmm. questions. But back to what was my original question in 2013, in fact. So the project was awarded in 2014, but it really started with the Snowden revelations in June 2013. So you guys mm-hmm. might remember it. Um, so uh, Edward Snowden was then a contractor with uh, the um, United States of America National Security Agency, started releasing classified documents about mass surveillance programs. He did so after fleeing the country and is still actually in the run and considered uh, a traitor in a way. But uh, for those of us interested in surveillance and in digital technology, of course, this was a key moment. And my, uh, I mean, it didn't surprise us in a way, I mean, the extent to which um, blanket data uh, surveillance uh, was being performed on U.S. citizens, but also citizens from many other countries, including uh, us in the Netherlands, was not a big surprise. But indeed, it was probably the first time in which surveillance made the news at such a great extent. So from a topic that was really for specialized uh, nerds, surveillance became a a topic of public discussions. It was in the eight o'clock news, it was in all uh, the uh, magazines and newspapers. And this made me come up with an hypothesis that after Snowden, nothing would have been the same in terms of the perception that us citizens and users of technology would have of the technology that we use in our daily life think, for example, about our dependence, really, on uh, the smartphone. Now, it turned out that I was a bit too optimistic, probably, there, because we still keep using pretty much the same, uh, you know, social media platforms, the same um, uh, tools and devices that we've been using before. And actually, with the pandemic, and we're going to maybe discuss that later, we have been saying yes to even more intrusive technology. But that said, the dialogue and the public perception of surveillance indeed changed. 
And this prompted me to start a project on what uh, you know, became called then, uh, data activism. What is data activism? So data activism indicates a number of mobilizations or critical attitudes towards technology. And uh, so it doesn't necessarily have to be activism per se, where people take the squares to demand change. But for us, it was sufficient that people would ask critical questions. So not take a device or a process or an experience of surveillance at face value as a given, as something that cannot be changed, but will try at least to change uh, their own practices or um, yeah, simply change behavior, ideally. Now, um, <coughs> excuse me, the weather is what it is these days. But uh, so what happened was um, that I put together this, this big project on data activism uh, that posited that we should, uh, so that um, people relate to information in a different way after Snowden. Some people might see information, back then it was called big data, remember? <laughs> So that was before the, the hype on, on artificial intelligence and machine learning. We're still talking about big data. And some people would then perceive big data as an occasion, as an opportunity for social change, as something pretty great and amazing that we can leverage to make the world a better place. Think, for example, of data journalism and a number of other experiences with, for example, open data, whereby people take data from public administrations, digest them, and for example, create a campaign on the basis of such data to demand change. So this will be an attitude, but then along the same line, the same the other side of the spectrum, we have another attitude, which is the more kind of protective. People who instead think that big data are an instance of, you know, a so-called big brother, some sort of overarching form of control implemented through technology and through information that is something to shy away, something to protect oneself from. And there uh, comes to a number of experiences uh, in creating, for example, encryption or teaching human rights defenders in authoritarian countries to um, defend their communication from state intrusion, so on and so forth. So the project that was called Data Active for the first time brought these different attitudes together. I mean, of course, uh, these attitudes, these behaviors, these tools and software that we're talking about, they were already under the scrutiny of researchers before. There were many movements, many groups that were already utilizing all of this. But uh, I guess what was innovative uh, with Data Active in 2014, and it's definitely far more widespread today and far more accepted today, is that we should look at these two phenomena, not in isolation, but as part of, in a way, two sides of the same uh, coin. And this was data active. Now, we learned a lot of things. We learned um, how people, uh, you know, we learned much more about how people, for example, come up with their own alternative imaginaries. Mm. So their own ways of making sense of technology, which is not necessarily, you know, the mainstream way of doing that. It's not necessarily the commercial imaginary, but sometimes it's something that really tries to alter the commercial mainstream way of seeing uh, technology. We have learned uh, about the shortcomings of data activism as well. We have, uh, you know, collected something like 250 interviews and a number of empirical data we're still actually <laughs> disentangling today, even after the project has ended. And many questions were left behind. That's why, uh, you know, there is a new project popping up, hopefully, but uh, maybe we'll talk about that later. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's, let's talk about that in a moment. You, I mean, you can see that you worked on this for six years and you're very uh, sort of used to presenting the main ideas of the project. One thing uh, we were particularly intrigued by is that the project involved a lot of work with activists and civil society groups, right? So you, you very uh, much try to involve them in the research itself, and obviously you did interviews um, uh, with these actors. Uh, but we were uh, interested in sort of what kind of methodological but also cultural challenges mm -hmm. did that pose? Uh, because obviously as a scholar you have also different interests and objectives than those out there in the field. Um, so can you tell us about that? And uh, would you also have done things differently if you could have started the project all over again and sort of rewind six years? 
Yeah, thank you for the very interesting uh, question. So um, I've been interested since the very beginning of my career into a slightly different type of doing research. Now, there's many colleagues who do that, but in a way, I really wanted to involve research subjects into the production of knowledge. Why is that? Because having worked for a long time on the interplay between technology and social movements, I consider social movements as a whole, as a you know, group of, of informed people, as uh, what we may uh, think as skilled learners. Mm. So people who actually know much better than we might as obs external observers uh, about their practices and what they do. Now, of course, we try to add insights and theoretical insights to that. But I wanted to put, uh, I've always wanted to put social actors in the driving seat of the process in a way that they could also get something back from being involved in a research project. Why is that? Well, in a way, these are people who try, and I mostly look uh, at progressive social movements, but these are people who spend their energy that we know they're always, we're always short on energies and time, but these people devote their energies and time and resources to try to create and shape a better world. In the moment in which I ask these, re uh, these activists to get engaged in my research projects, I'm sort of stealing away these limited resources for social change. Mm. So my reasoning is, well, there ought to be something in the process for them, for them to be engaged, so ultimately also to, to gather better quality data, but also as my sort of little contribution to their mission, to their social goals. And I call this engaged uh, research, and that's something that I also experimented widely with uh, my uh, PhD. Now, when I got involved with Data Active and I had the chance to gather an awesome uh, group of uh, people around the project, I've also learned with uh, them, so with PhD students and postdocs and research assistants and research associates and you name them, about how to do this and how to do it uh, better. So we experimented with what we called um, activist, data activist research, sorry. So research which is on data activism, but also that tries to turn the information, the data, into activism itself. And that's why we, you know, we, for example, we try to have focused encounters. We also organized one of these in Amsterdam, whereby, whereby uh, we brought together for two days um, non-governmental organizations active on surveillance and open data and you name it, try to chart with them also possible research agenda. So what are their needs? What are their priorities? And how can we sort of meet along the way? Now, this is also to some extent wishful thinking in the mm. sense that at the end of the day, uh, academia and civil society organizations work with different, uh, you know, languages, uh, different time frames, uh, uh, different uh, goals in mind. We are very slow as academics typically, or the system, whatever that is. <laughs> forces us to be a bit slower, maybe it's also our output, you know, it's, it's different from what uh, they might be interested on. So, uh, in a way, what would we do better? Uh, maybe we, we, to do this better, it would have been better to even involve them in writing the research project, right? Mm. Uh, e or involving them even earlier into charting this research agenda. Mm. Uh, still, I do believe that we achieved something, mostly showing that it's possible to do research in a way that engages also in some form of restitution, some form of giving back, and some form of empowerment of mm. social uh, actors. Mm. But there's a lot more to be done in this field as well. Nice. Mm -hmm. okay. well, can I ask, maybe following up on that, uh, I have to say I'm a bit of a Debbie Downer, so I have sort of a negative uh, <laughs> sort of uh, approach to many questions, but. Also having done research on social movements myself, but on environmental movements, I find that even though we might define their goals as progressive, uh, in practice often we see all kinds of race and class and, and gender sort of mechanisms asserting themselves with, within social movements and also impacting their material effects. Um, so you said, you sort of said as a disclaimer, I only work with uh, progressive social movements. Uh, but I wondered if you also saw these, these forms of maybe be exclusion or, or you in your work I read a little bit like state is bad corporations bad social movements good um, of course I, I simplify but uh, in addition to wanting to help social movements did you also stumble upon aspects of these movements of these forms of data activism that you might be more critical of 
Oh yeah, definitely. That's definitely something that uh, that should, we should also reflect on. I mean, in a way, privacy activism, surveillance activism, you name it, everything that we put under the umbrella term of data activism can be seen as luxury activism. Mm -hmm. What do I mean? Although the people who engage in this type of activism have the best intentions, they're mm -hmm. often white, uh, they're often male, especially, you know, if you think, I mean, that there's, there are some divides that, that chart upon, I mean, they reflect mm -hmm. existing divides that we already know in society. I mean, to be the software developer, you have to have access typically to some form of structured education, for example. Mm -hmm. You have to have access to state-of-the-art technology. You have to have access to a, a good, stable connection. And whereas uh, things are uh, changing and there's much more diversity in that group as well, these divides are still there. Mm -hmm. It's also true that um, the activists themselves are very aware of it and they try more and more to be inclusive, to share knowledge, to empower other people that might be less lucky than they are. But it's a fact that to care about this topic, you have to have food in your stomach to start with, right? I mean, if I uh, am a mother of three children and I don't have uh, anything to feed them uh, with, Certainly, I'm not really worried about privacy in the first place, right? Um, it's the case, actually, of, um, of a work um, on India that um, I was um, made aware of through my co-author, Silvia Maziero, from the University of Oslo. There, for example, so you might know that in, uh, in India there is um, the biggest uh, digital identity uh, system in the world, which implements biometric Attire, identification. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And, um, you know, it is to some extent um, optional, but it is used and biometric identification is used for food subsidies. So mm. if you want to get access to food subsidies to feed your family, you have to give your fingerprint. So, you know, uh, it's a matter of priority there again, right? So in that sense, there's a lot of work to do to, I mean, correct inequalities of this world. Not everything can be put on the shoulders of privacy or data activists, though, right? Mm -hmm. But that's something that we should also be aware of. Yeah. Or, or another thing I was thinking of, and again, this is my own sort of maybe perhaps negative uh, uh, sort of approach to certain questions, but uh, myself, I've also worked on organized crime, and uh, I, have, I have a colleague, uh, Jova Lewis, who, who worked in Jamaica also on so-called uh, lottery scammers, but these are people who worked at uh, call centers and uh, very creatively appropriated uh, the data that these call centers had to set up a very elaborate, a very high-tech, basically, uh, scam uh, of, of people in the U.S. Uh, so I'm wondering also, did you encounter any of this? So, so your work focuses in part on um, what you call data, data at the margins, so people in, in less powerful positions who are negotiating data in various ways. And, and you focus mainly on how they use these in, in, again, I would say progressive ways, so to resist the system. But uh, have you also uh, engaged with these more illicit practices, which you could also see as forms of subversion or inversion of, of corporate priorities? Very interesting question, I have to say, and I actually don't even know why that's the case, but uh, in the context of the Data Active project, uh, we haven't encountered, uh, I would say, any of these instances. I have to say, though, that with my previous work on, for example, hacker communities, yes, I have come across a lot of this. Sure. Uh, but then, again, like there's some overlap between hacker communities and data activists. But for some reason, with uh, data activism, the Data Active project, uh, we, uh, there was so much good stuff happening that we didn't have much chance, I guess, to also uh, devote our attention to the more dodgy, um, you know, implementation of uh, subversions and reappropriation. Mm -hmm. But I'm sure there's a lot happening there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's kind of fitting that we're doing this uh, uh, podcast review, uh, given that uh, the Data Active project was obviously very much also focus not just in involving activists, uh, NGOs in the project, but also to create a type of output that goes beyond sort of traditional scholarly articles and books, right? So you've done, uh, uh, well, I don't know whether you've done podcasts, uh, but you've certainly organized events that were open to a larger public. You've published blog posts, uh, you've published a book. Um, on uh, 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 on um, uh, the pandemic uh, at the margins. Uh, so um, I was wondering, thinking about these different outputs, why do you think it's important to develop them? 
why do we need to go beyond just producing scholarly work? Uh, and what, what output were you the most proud of over the last uh, six years? Mm. Wow. Thank you. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so I'm a former journalist. Mm. Actually still with my press card that I renew every year. Uh, because you never know what happens in life, but also because I, I do believe that storytelling is part of my identity. I might not really work anymore as a journalist, but I occasionally happen to teach. Uh, mm. Also, here yeah, the UVA mm. uh, mm. journalism. I, I was involved with teaching, for example, data journalism, a BA course that we have. But also, I do believe in the power, but also the imperative of telling the story, of, of sharing. So think about not just journalism and storytelling, but also science communication. I do believe that uh, we have the moral imperative to also go beyond, uh, you know, the, the general uh, expected uh, scholarly output, which often sit, unfortunately, behind uh, paywalls mm. or are simply overly specialized. And let's face it, also a little bit boring sometimes. Mm. So <gasps> engaging <Boring>. with... <laughs> <laughs> You're not saying. <laughs> no, 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 of course not. That doesn't concern anyone in this room, but... <laughs> There, there is, I mean, in fact, uh, um, you know, we, we can engage at sharing our research at different level and with mm. different audiences. And I particularly enjoy also trying to go beyond the statutory type of output. And so, yes, that's why we organize several um, events uh, with the general public. We also organize parties because they're part of collective learning. I defend that. I'm particularly sad that with the pandemic, this is all, you know, uh, on a yeah. halt for the moment, and I hope that we can resume those uh, too, because informal ways of learning are also very, very important, so not only for mm -hmm. the mood, but also for the quality of the learning itself. But apart from that, and this is probably what I've been the most proud of, um, the recently we have, so in 2021, although, you know, pandemic time, uh, probably you also shared these experiences, is this kind of limbo blurb that, that mm, takes different mm. dimensions, different days and different parts of the week. It seems like infinite, but also very quick. And I really don't, don't even know where we are now in the calendar. But so earlier in the year, we published a book with the Amsterdam-based uh, Institute um, for Network Cultures. <laughs> INC, that, right? Yeah, that uh, has this awesome uh, series, Open Access series, fully open access series called Theory on Demand. So our book is, is number 40 in the series. So mm -hmm. look up the other 39 and the ones to come. I already know that they have published a few others. But that's a book that comes from a blog. So how did it go? So with the pandemic, um, we noticed from the very early on, and when I say we, it's myself together with two colleagues that I work a lot with recently, Emiliano Trede from um, Cardiff University in the UK and Silvia Maziero from the University of Oslo that I, I've, I've just mentioned about India. So in our conversations, we realized that there was a lot being written on the pandemic, but it was so, so the pandemic was really hitting us so close to home that it infringed our ability to look beyond home. Mm. I mean, bes besides the pandemic, starting in China, then traveling to Italy, then, you know, being pretty much everywhere. Of course, when it hits so close to home, we primarily care about our own uh, people. And this, uh, however, also coupled with the lack of data about certain social realities, like the entire African continent uh, propelled or paved the way for uh, some uh, misinterpretation of reality. I remember in particular a situation in Italy, my own country, where uh, undocumented migrants were often on African origins in Italy. They were accused of being immune to the virus. Uh, and by being accused, this was coupled with, hey, they already come here to steal our job and our mm. women. Uh, now they also don't get sick. And the reason why they don't get sick is that they would not report sick, simply in the fear of being deported, right? But this also had to, uh, had to do, for example, with the African continent. At the inception of the pandemic, only two out of 54 sorry, countries, African countries, had the ability to test for the virus, therefore to identify the virus. So we didn't have data, we didn't have information about an entire continent, right? So this all led to a sort of misrepresentation, a partial representation of the pandemic. And so we started the blog, which actually developed out of another blog and out of another initiative which is called the Big Data from the South Research Initiative. The blog in question was called COVID-19 from the Margins. And the idea was really to give voice to a number of alternative narratives from the pandemic, seeing from the perspective of those that were left out of the mainstream narrative. 
Now, this meant that this was a multilingual narrative, that we spent a lot of time also like helping people articulate their story, because often people who are not at the center of the story also, for example, are not used to write in English, or they're not used to write a blog post. So there was also a lot of capacity building there. Uh, we didn't have any funding except for some little uh, help, also, by the way, later by the, the global digital cultures, and uh, also some from the Amsterdam um, School of Cultural Analysis, ASCA. Uh, thanks to the to 1,000 euros that we received from ASCA, we were able to, for example, pay for uh, you know the contributors uh, in need, so those who didn't mm. have a salary, so that they could write. There were small sums, but it's a little bit of a symbol, at least. And then this blog, it was so beautiful and so active, we couldn't sustain it anymore because it was just too much work uh, as volunteers that we decided to sort of put it in print uh, into the book and we found Gert Lovink who is being very visionary individual also allowed us to publish a multilingual uh, book where the multilingualism is also a vehicle for making people, readers in this case, experience the discomfort Mm. that people at the margins often feel. When, for example, we use English as a lingua franca, right? So maybe they don't speak English. So I guess the, the book, which is called COVID from the margins, with a quite convoluted subtitle I never remember, is available for free. You can download it. You can also request your own printed copy. I have a pile in my office. Please get, help me <laughs> get the email. Send her an email. Send her an email. She needs more office exactly. space. <laughs> I need some breathing space. Yeah. I need to get rid of those books. With the pandemic, of course, we don't go to conferences anymore, right? So I'm stuck with this pile. But uh, yeah, this is, I guess, is uh, something most, I'm very of proud of. Things you're most proud of. Yeah. So, so evidently, your your work connects directly to the pandemic and things we're we're seeing around us every day uh, be becoming normalized, new types of technology being inserted into our lives. And this, it sounds like, is is, is what you want to be concentrating on uh, for the next couple of years. Uh, what, what you've been calling data infrastructure, regulatory data infrastructures. Could you could you tell us a little bit more about this? Now, in geography, anthropology, where I'm situated, we've had this infrastructural turn. Uh, so, can can you tell us a little bit what 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 do you mean by this? What does the term infrastructure add? Tell us what you want to research and, and how it connects to the pandemic. Yeah, thank you for this question because it allows me to, uh, you know, look to the future. So what, I, what I'm going to share now is really just uh, early thoughts about this, right? I haven't done any actually empirical research, although I've done some writing, mostly in sort of pro in the form of programmatic writing. But what do I mean? So I observe, like we all observe, and we all live through it on a daily basis, how certain um, social technical, let's say, solutions. So solutions which are technical, I mean, they often involve, for example, a smartphone, but they also have social effects, have become a, a staple of the new normal of the pandemic. Just to give you a concrete example, as soon as we sat here, this beautiful um, spot that is hosting us for the podcast, we had to show our vaccination uh, certificate, which is, of course, one of the ways in which um, you know, movement, people's movement and social interactions are regulated today. And we'll say rightly so, right? You have to, to create the conditions so that some activities can uh, restart with some level of uh, safety for those involved. Uh, yet, I mean, I mean, you know, thinking also about thermal cameras that always existed in airports, especially in Asia, but then now they're pretty much everywhere. Uh, facial recognition cameras that are pretty much every stadium, a big stadium uh, today, uh, with the idea, you know, of uh, identifying people with fever and throwing them out of the stadium so that the other can be safe. Uh, but also, you know, contact tracing apps and, and you name it. There's mm -hmm. a lot um, more that has been become, you know, very. As, was there already before in, in some form or another, but has become much more widespread thanks to uh, the pandemic. Now, these infrastructures, so these data infrastructures, they are infrastructures. I'm talking about the infrastructural turn in geography, but it's pretty much everywhere, I would say, now an infrastructural turn also in our field. But um, infra by infrastructure, I mean complex constructions that have to do with uh, you know, devices, portable devices, but they also have to do with the data centers where these data are stored. They have to do with the, you know, the machine, the QR code reader that reads the data and stores the data and the back end of restaurants, for example, where you enter and so on and so forth. So these data infrastructures are particularly interesting because they absorb a regulatory function. What do I mean? 
uh, they regulate people's movement. They stop you, for example, from entering a restaurant if you don't have an active Green Pass, right? A vaccination certificate, as it is called in Europe, Green Pass. Um, or other similar, uh, so they, they take decisions on the spot and produce data which is aimed at monitoring the polity, monitoring sociality, but also is aimed at facilitating decision making by policy makers, by providing them with semi-real-time data, quasi-real-time data, to take decisions, which are very often draconian decisions about lockdowns, and they're certainly not very popular and very easy uh, to take. Now, the, the pandemic has really propelled these forms of infrastructure to the core of what we may imagine as a new form of governance. I mean, it was already there for the large part, but it has become much more widespread, which we might call governance by data infrastructure. What is so special about this governance? Well, is the pervasiveness of it, but also the fact that it's increasingly difficult to opt out. Think, for example, about another type of um, uh, regulatory data infrastructure, which is really close to us. Uh, you know, all the um, devices or the software that is used to um, teach in a pandemic, like proctoring software, which is the one that surveils, watches over students when they um, take their exams sitting in, in the solitude of their room, right? So trying to, with facial recognition devices, trying to uh, identify whether they copy, but of course it's also pretty intrusive and, and not very well received by students themselves, understandably so. But also think about um, uh, educational technology. So the platforms that were adopted in the school of your children when all of a sudden the teachers had to go completely online. Now, this might not be necessarily the case in the Netherlands. <laughs> I'm looking at Rivka here. Well, well not it. Well, I should say, uh, uh, I have a, yeah. a six-year-old, so maybe in, in high school, I'm looking at Thomas. Maybe, yeah, maybe they certainly they used uh, lots of uh, tools to actually uh, be able to teach online, for sure. But what is yeah. uh, quite disturbing is if you look at, uh, for example, the United States case, mm. where it's a bit like ahead mm. in many respects. These are platforms that are generating data in real time about children. In China, for example, there are, these are also coupled with emotional detection, so that in principle, you as a teacher are able to adapt your delivery mm. <laughs> to the class, to the mood of the class. Mm. Uh, so you can see that you can, you know, see uh, the temperature of the room in a way like uh, the extent to which children are distracted or children needs to be punished or whatever. But also often this is coupled with a commercial level of then commercial offers reaching the parents so like vouchers to buy this and that and so basically you turn education into a much more uh, commercial and surveilled it's, situation it's what, so so i understand the the term infrastructure and to also look at the governance of it all but is this not also very similar to uh what's, what's being discussed as disaster capitalism that you take a crisis whether it's a natural disaster or, or a terrorist attack or a global pandemic and uh many savvy corporations see a market opportunity and a way to insert themselves and make themselves necessary to both consumers and governments and to to basically make themselves inextractable for the future is is it is it that or, or is it's it something that, different? It's that and it, it's a bit beyond that as well. So emergency, the notion of emergency is of uh, paramount importance here in the sense that emergency and the emergency rationalities are what in, indeed justify mm. the adoption of this technology. Mm. But there is uh, more to that, I think, is that progressively there, it's more and more impossible to opt out. And we are setting now the infrastructure, the scaffolding, for this to stay with us for a long time. And in a way, during an emergency, what you see is that, um, for example, privacy is, uh, comes second in favor of uh, you know, public health and stuff like that. And again, understandably so, but we lower our guard. And um, I mean, it's not very different from, different from what you're talking about, but what is different is the scale of it mm -hmm. and the pervasiveness of it. And the fact that we have more and more the interpenetration of different spheres of action that were distinct, like facial recognition being used in educational technology or digital identity technology being used to uh, you know, get access to, to a restaurant and stuff like that. So the interpenetration of different realms 
of activity that used to be um, distinct, separated. It seems very much into everyday life, everyday work, uh, as opposed to more more emergency context. Yeah, I mean, it's the emergency that then is justified to become everyday. Yeah, and it's interesting the way you, you just talk about it. It seems very pervasive, right? It, fe- it seems uh, ubiquitous in terms of surveillance, in terms of the ability of key actors to be able to read, uh, well, in this case, children. Uh, but in my experience, well, my children are, what is it, 13, 15? It was also a festival of disconnection, right? The inability to actually communicate and the inability of the teacher to actually reach the children at home and and uh, and sort of read the room. So to what extent do you also uh, consider um, these infrastructures as, uh, as indeed emerging, as uh, full of um, uh, bugs and uh, problems that actually don't work very well in, in uh, well, some of the cases where they needed to work very well. Or at the minimum maybe uh, sort of uh, frictions. So, so yeah. I think if if I can tie to what Thomas is saying, like, uh, so one thing that's critiqued a lot by by scholars, including yourself, is the idea of techno solutionism that you know technology will solve our problems, which of course is is not true. But but sometimes I detect a sort of uh, techno alarmism, like oh my God, we're you know we're doomed. Uh, it's everywhere. Uh, there's no escape. Uh, but that seems also too too binary a narrative. Is 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 there yeah? Are there bugs? Are there frictions? Is there is escape possible? Or at least is the system less perfect than either its proponents or its critics uh, suggest? Yeah, well, you know, uh, whatever I study, I'm actually very much interested in and driven to the topic by the possibilities of subversion mm. um, or just failure or breakdown or just, just an inadvertent just uh, inefficacy just this lack of living up to its promise yeah but then I mean this is also when infrastructure becomes visible right I mean we tend to ignore the existence of infrastructure because it works we, we see it as citizens as users when it breaks down or, or so conversely sure. sorry, sorry to d- interrupt and disagree but that uh, we really liked your idea of also sort of the theater like the security theater but also the hygiene theater of, of COVID, it's also meant to be very visible and tangible to show us like, hey, the government's, you know, really doing something to help you. Here is all this infrastructure. So it's not only invisible, it's also quite performative and, and uh, it's supposed to be like noticeable, right? Yeah, the QR codes are, you know, in your face the moment yeah, you... Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah. At, at the same time, I mean, well, there are different stories here that you that you are evoking, right? On the one Sorry, hand... Sorry, just the, complicating the, the, the whole narrative No, but that, that's, that's the beauty of it, right? That... Uh, well, I would love to work on it precisely because it is complicated, but I might not have all the answers right now. But so uh, on the one end, of course, uh, you know, frictions and disconnections and all of this, it's it's, uh, a reality of our experience, but also is one of our ways to, besides talking about infrastructure failure, also to reclaim agency. Mm-hmm. And maybe say, you know, if I was 15 years old and I didn't want to go to school these days, I would just say, oh, my intern doesn't work today, bye. Right. So, so evoking creatively, mm-hmm. uh, you know, this connection mm. as, as a way out. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one thing. The other is, of course, the performative aspect. And I wrote about that together with some awesome colleagues, Lina Taylor, Seda Gerzes, and Michael Veal. Um, something about vaccination certificates as precisely performative. I mean, vaccination certificates actually don't really work that well. And if you look at, and I mean, being in between Italy and the Netherlands, I for example see how for the same document actually means different things in different countries Mm. Mm. and even now in the Netherlands there's this discussion about uh, do we consider the vaccination certificate only do you give the vaccination certificate only when people are vaccinated or only when they are tested negative Mm. and which test for example so it's performative also because uh, it, it doesn't live up to its promise of being this one and only techno solution that solves it all so because the prob- problem is not technological it's, it's, it's public health which mm-hmm. can only be partially solved with um, with uh, technology and there was something else I wanted to say but I forgot <laughs> friction failure b- uh, bugs disconnection <laughs> resistance <laughs> next uh, question please I don't remember okay. well something is kind of related to this notion of techno solutionism you've um, recently written about the standard human right as a term and can you explain to us why that's problematic? And related to that, I'm also interested by this other term which you put forward, which uh, you uh, use or borrow from uh, 
Arturo uh, Escobar, which is the notion of the pluriverse as a way forward to thinking about the way we engage with data in, in, a con in the context of the pandemic. So can you talk about these two terms, so the, the standard human and the pluriverse? Yeah, so these two terms are actually not something that I came up with. I wish I did, but as always, be be the best things come from other people. So um, the standard human refers to, actually comes from a piece of work by a sociologist in the US called Stephen Epstein, who wrote, wrote a lot about sociology of health, among other uh, mm. things. And for example, about the struggle for obtaining um, HIV um, AIDS medication in the uh, a few dec decades ago in the United States. And I borrow it to talk about the pandemic. Why? Precisely because of what I mentioned earlier, the fact that the pandemic, being this global problem, was presented as something that eats us all equally. Now, that's something definitely true, right? We all can catch it and we can all unfortunately die from it. But there are people who are much more vulnerable. And uh, I mean, besides the health-related vulnerabilities uh, that uh, you know, different individuals might carry, I wanted to shed light on the social-related, social, related, social uh, inequality part of the story. And for example, then looking and reading quite extensively in a field which is not mine, but it fascinates me big time these days, which is sociology and medicine, mm. I realized, for example, because other people wrote about it, how medical data are largely white. Mm. I mean, from white individuals, from male individuals, and from individuals with from certain social class, because these are the experimental populations available to uh, to, to the researchers, but also these are the wealthiest ones, right? So the ones that can pay for potential remedies that are identified through research. So very expensive medicine or treatments, for example. And I wasn't aware of that, so I decided to bring it up to also uh, discuss the pandemic to connect to, for example, what I said earlier about Africa, the fact that data is not available, but also solutions might not be available when data is not available about certain social reality. And to discuss how the pandemic, if, if we're treating us all as equal, the narrative of the pandemic would then hide or actively uh, ignore uh, the dimension of social inequality, social economic and cultural inequality, for example. So that's one side of the story. And then the other, the, 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 another term that then I put forward as a sort of solution, but mostly as a sort of evocative solution, as a sort of way forward or direction to look at, because it's not very concrete, but comes from the work of an anthropologist that I deeply respect, Arturo Escobar. If you have not read his book, books, there are several, just look at it because it's fantastic stuff. And um, Arturo Escobar wrote uh, in 2018, I think, this book on the pluriverse, which is just one of the last of, of you know, in, in his trajectory. He wrote a lot about this and about, for example, the fact that there is no one, one development only for everyone in the world, for example, right? Or one way to develop mm. one's country. Um, in, in, uh, which is, you know, a copycat of the Western way of, of uh, economic growth, for example. But the notion of pluriverse makes rooms for different ways of being in the world. So it's really antithetical, it's the answer to the standard human. And it's not very concrete in a way, uh, because, I mean, when you say pluriverse, which is the opposite of the universe, pluri-uni, mm -hmm. right, uh, then, uh, um, you know, you really open up the spectrum, you open up to a lot of different solutions. But why not? Maybe, uh, you know, going local, going uh, at the level of the community might be a solution that works better than just QR code for, for all. So do, do you have any concrete examples of, of what the pluriverse would look like, uh, for instance, in relationship to the pandemic? Do, do you have any sort of underground instances where you're like, look, this is people putting this into practice? Okay, let's, let's, uh, I have many examples, and as usual, when you have many examples in your head, there's nothing you can really pin down, but I would like maybe to talk about one in particular, which I found very inspiring because it relates to a community of scholars that we never interface with. Um, and they are uh, scholars of um, astronomy. 
And this was a community. So as you know, there are a lot of big telescopes in Latin America mm -hmm. because there are, you know, in the Andes and in other parts of Chile and Brazil, there's a uh, huge... Say, so, so actually, my dad's an astronomer who used oh. to go to Chile all the time. <laughs> Oh, really? I, didn't know that. I talk to this community of scholars uh, frequently. <laughs> okay, so lucky you, because yeah. for me, something super fascinating, but <laughs> definitely something that is so distant, right? That you only read in the book, in the books and in the news. And uh, so there was a community of astronomers in uh, Brazil, in some remote part of Brazil, um, and they were working on some projects, um, and they were in an indigenous land. And what they realized, they also had money, though, to kind of do something with the local community, but it related to stars and the solar system or whatever. So to their expertise. And what they did instead, because they were sort of trapped there with the, um, with the pandemic, they decided to use some of their research funding to actually work with the community there. And um, I invite you to read about that in the COVID from the margins book, because I don't remember now the details of the amazing stuff that they did. But it was really something that I had to do with collecting the stories of the stars from the point of view of so different narratives of the sky. That was, I mean, that didn't have much to do with the pandemic itself, but that gave that the pandemic made room for, mm -hmm. and this created uh, novel, uh, you know, alliances and novel possibilities also for the local indigenous uh, community. So I guess for me this is a very good example, a very exotic example of a pluriverse in action. <laughs> Interesting. Um, maybe so. So you've been mentioning various instances where you're, where you're working with or thinking with uh, communities or, or scholars or activists outside of Europe and North America. This of certain of course, something as global digital cultures, we're also interested in pushing our analyses of, of the digital beyond you know this narrow set of, of countries. Uh, but to so to think the global, but also to think about the cultural dimension of uh, of, of work on, on technology or on digitalization, whether it's critical data studies or et cetera, et cetera. So can you tell us a little bit more? Um, and, and I've, I've read a little bit uh, about how you position yourself on this, but. Uh, how, how do you engage with categories such as North or South, uh, West or non-West? What, what do you think these categories help us see and, and what maybe do they occlude? What do they hide? Yeah, this is a very interesting question and I should be aware that I'm talking to a geographer here as well. Because I have to say <laughs> that in my work, I've always ignored geography. What do I mean by that? I'm <laughs> shocked, you shocked and dismayed. I always, so typically, for example, if you have like, I have a background in political science, a lot of your work is going to be comparative, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, you compare the UK with the, with the Netherlands, Italy with France or, you know, whatever. Also outside Europe, of course. And um, the assumption there is that through comparison, you can learn more about the specifics. But in my work, I've always shied away from a comparative perspective. Why is that? I mean, I've done comparative works, but for example, comparing technology, not comparing geographies. And why is that? Mostly because I always look at relatively niche type of activism, for example, or type of technology use for which it made little sense to, talk, to, uh, to compare, I don't know, Italians and Belgian activists because they are so small groups that, in fact, what we observe there is that the national culture doesn't have much of an influence whereas the technological culture has much bigger influence. And uh, probably because of that, um, I've never... So I, I'm always a bit wary of using terminology like Global South and Global North, mostly because I am myself a very hybrid animal. I mean, I, I can be classified, because I am, as a Global North uh, academic. And often when we talk about the global north, there is also this uh, you know, assumption that we are the privileged one, because in fact we are, but also the one who sometimes are not even entitled to speak or look at uh, certain Saturn examples, because we're not there, we're not one of them. And this us versus them is only something that I find very constrictive as a, as a sort of narrative. And uh, in fact, uh, you know, I feel like a very Southern person. I'm Italian after all. I come from a small village. I come not necessarily from a privileged background either. So why am I not, for example, a Southerner? I mean, in the Netherlands, I'm definitely a Southerner. So this is to say that we are all situated and I use this terminology in a social serving manner because uh, it's, it's more like, a, again, it reflects where I am at a given moment 
and where I am, not necessarily physically, but also with my work and with the, with the audience that I have and with the, 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 the social actors that I'm interacting with. And then I try to make sense of what makes sense to them, in a way. So if I talk about the South, um, I, I rarely talk about a geographical South, but I talk about like a South as a proxy for disempowerment, for um, resistance also, for creativity. It really depends. Mm -hmm. So that's also why recently we have been speaking to, with my colleagues also more about the margins which is also a very special, spatial metaphor. Totally special. <laughs> I think there's <laughs> periphery, geography. Well, it's all about space. Well, well that, that's, a, that's a global in, in our GDC uh, abbreviation. But what about the sea? So how does the cultural feature in your, uh, in your work? So how do you engage with the cultural dimension of our engagements with digital technology, with, with data? And maybe, maybe to just add to that, so uh, in, in a recent article with Emiliano Trere, you, you sort of build about, you talk about building blocks to think about um, uh, data from the margins. And you talk about data infrastructures, obviously, imaginaries, which you talked about, and practices. So that kind of raises the question, first of all, so where's culture in this? Uh, and where's the economy, right? So where are the data markets uh, and the data cultures? Yeah, so culture is, for me, has always been uh, this risky concept mm. but because sometimes it's used as a wishy-washy type of thing. Like you can stretch it wide and far to indicate pretty much anything. And that's why if you ask me where do I locate in these building blocks that you, Thomas just mentioned, where do I locate culture? Well, it's pretty much everywhere, but it's probably mostly in the imaginaries as the way in which culture gets uh, spelled out and in the practices as the way in which culture materializes in a way. So culture is pretty much everywhere um, and uh, it permeates the work that I do. And of course it's, uh, I mean, when I say, you know, I, I've done work in Brazil, the work on technology in Brazil is different from the work on technology in the Netherlands. I'm thinking here about my PhD, where I looked at different technologically active uh, communities. But also if I look at Brazil, there's a big distinction between the urban Brazilians in Sao Paulo and the certain indigenous communities of women that were trying to retrieve uh, a sort of uh, naturalistic, holistic approach to um, culture really, indigenous or, culture or related between to Rio and Sao Paulo it might yeah. already be worlds apart. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Well we're talking mm. about the country that is a continent in itself. And incidentally is a country that I that I feel very close to uh, also in virtual speaking the language and really liking it a lot. But um, yeah so culture is, is pretty much widespread. Now when you talk about where's the economy, I mean for me, political economy has always played a very important role, mm. as has always done the state. And it is true, I might actually look at citizen practices, because that's what I specialized on. We all specialize in something else. But this is always in response to something else. So it's never a practice or a culture or an imaginary that floats into the empty space. It's always something that has to do and take to heart the dialogue with the political economy of the time. So it's absolutely there. So markets might maybe have sometimes other names, uh, but uh, they are a very, very strong presence. It's very hard when you talk about technology to ignore the dimension. Unfortunately, I would say sometimes. Sure. Hello. Yeah. I, th I think we were, we're about to wrap up, but uh, can I ask you to leave us with, with a recommendation for, for reading or for listening? So is there any one book, and I, I know you're incredibly well-read, but is there one book or one article or it could be one movie or one song that, that you say, oh, you must read this uh, if, if you want to know more about the stuff I'm, I'm passionate about? What, what should we read or listen to or watch? Yeah, so I'm gonna. So there's a lot of possibilities uh, here, I guess. But I, I would like to give a shout out to the work of a colleague. Um, incidentally, it's an Italian colleague, but also a very global <laughs> individual, Veronica uh, Barassi, who used to be a goldsmith uh, in the UK, is now at uh, St Gallen, University of St Gallen in Switzerland, who in 2020 published a book that I recently read, which was titled, of course, I tend to forget because there are three words. And I'm sure I'm not really going to give justice to it in terms of order, but I think it is like citizen data tech or a child citizen data. I don't remember now the order, but it's published by MIT Press. 
and I recently reread it again because um, uh, Veronica also published recently an Italian version of it called I figli dell'algoritmo. So why we should all read it, whether we have children or not, because it really uh, looks at um, the early age, really, which are, I mean, they're not only the, the students of the future, but they're the citizens of the future, and how the young generations, very, very young generations, are being profiled from pregnancy onwards, and how this reduces, in a way, also their possibilities. So thank you very much, Thomas, for showing the title. Can you read it for us? Oh, I can do that. Yeah, so the title is uh, Child Data Citizen. <laughs> thank you very much. It's always like when you have these three words that I never know exactly how difficult. Uh, to combine it. But I invite you to have a look. I mean, at least it reflects also my ignorance in the sense that not having children, I've always ignored that environment or that, you know, uh, age, series of age cohorts. Uh, and um, but I don't think we can afford whether we have children or not to ignore it anymore, especially if we are teachers or we are citizens in a society where precisely those children uh, will be our future. Thank you. It sounds like a must read. Uh, Absolutely. For scholars, for parents, but also, yeah, as you say, for citizens. So thank you so much. Thanks yeah, for talking. Thank you to very us. much. Thank you for nice. having me. Enjoyed it a lot. Uh,